Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Peter. And uh, we are in chapter 3. As you are turning there, let's just think a little bit of the story of Scripture. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was good. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden as God's representatives. They were co-rulers in God's kingdom under his authority. They were to go and subdue the earth and shape it and mold it. Uh, They had one restriction that they were not to eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve and they ate. And at the heart of that, at least in part, other than disobedience from God, Adam and Eve were choosing to define good and evil on their own without God's leading in their life. And because of that, man and woman are cast from the garden. They're exiles, as we have been talking about, which now becomes one of the themes of scriptures of how we get back to that place, living under God's rule in God's presence. Now there was a list of curses and consequences and promises that came after that. The promise was uh, kind of hard to understand. They said that there would be a seed that would come that would uh, crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would bite the heel of the seed. And we believe that to be the person of Jesus Christ who crushed Satan on the cross, Satan bruising Jesus by the crucifixion, but he overcame that. And there's a bunch of other things in there that over the years people have tried to define. And one of them is the relationship that now happens between man and woman. Um, And let me just say this, that when man and woman decide to define good and evil on their own, when they are put into a position where now they are being led by both pride and shame at the same time, it's going to make relationships very difficult. So we are venturing into a difficult topic in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to deal with this in uh, three points. I am going to make some clarifications uh, because I think they're important. Uh, Then we are going to look at the characteristics of a gospel-centered marriage. And then we're going to look at some callings that come out uh, for us as families and as individuals uh, in the church. When we sin, and we've all sinned, when Adam and Eve sin and sin entered in, our relationship with God is broken. And people say, yeah, we understand that and we need to apply the gospel. But that's not the only thing that was broken. Also, our relationship with ourselves was broken. Adam and Eve were instantly feeling shame and hiding from God. Um, Our relationship with other people are broken. Um, Not just in marriage, but in everything. And then even our relationship with the world is broken. Uh, It's just not working correctly. So we are going to try to answer some of these questions. Um, If you have something near you that uh, you can throw, I'd like you to just set it aside for a little bit and wait till I get to the end. 1 Peter chapter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, uh, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. I felt like I need to clarify that this morning. <laughs> I think in here, I think it's important for us to recognize uh, that I think Peter is focusing on two things. One, uh, he's talking about how we win the lost in our, uh, in our world, and he's talking even about in our homes, and then he's going to move into that into a deeper way as he moves through First Peter uh, 3. And I also think he's talking about how we talk, how we... Uh, minister to vulnerable people in our society, but we'll get into that. Some clarifications. Uh, to start, I want to quote one of the commentaries uh, that I came across because I thought this was a helpful clarification. So this is the commentator writing. I want to say a few things about what Peter's call to submission does not mean for Christian wives. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a different view. It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you, you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quietly in the home and accept daily cruelty in a relationship at all costs. Um, here's my clarifications. Number one, marriage is hard. Can we just start with that? Um, nobody wants to say amen to that, but the reality is marriage is hard. And there's at least three things that we could clarify that with. First of all, it's actually in the context. Um, I found, came across one sermon uh, preached by a bachelor, by the way. Um, and uh, his sermon title was, Marriage is Unjust Suffering. Uh, the preacher uh, preached this sermon three times. The first uh, was as a bachelor at a friend's wedding. And then the pastor said, well, why don't you try that at church? And he did the same sermon. The pastor being surprised, this bachelor was quite older when he finally got married. And when he got married, the pastor said, I dare you to preach that again. So he did. But his point was, in the context of chapter two, we've already been looking at this whole idea of of going on during unjust suffering. And so there is a point where Peter is putting this in a very difficult circumstance. Second, it's in the storyline of scripture. That's why I started with that. This goes all the way back to the garden to one point or another. Marriage is hard because now you have two broken people trying to live in unity together. And just so you know, I'm clear here, two broken people. It's really easy to identify the brokenness of your spouse. What's difficult is often to recognize the brokenness you bring into the relationship. 
But the Bible is clear that we are all sinners and that we have a bent towards ourselves. And so the storyline of scripture says marriage is difficult. And third, our culture is making it even more difficult. Um, I was really disappointed uh, in my study of this passage um, and not surprised, but disappointed in that most of what I read about this passage was from males. There was very little women contributions to this difficult passage. Um, And I would say, as a man, we have a bias to how we would interpret this. So I reached out to Carmen. Carmen's written a few articles on this, and I I read them, and I wish, they were great, but I wish I could find more, but I was really struggling to find more from women theologians. And Carmen, uh, no offense, wrote this a while ago, and she was fighting, I think, some of the problems that were present in the church. And when I read that, my first reaction was, I don't think I've experienced the misuse of this passage that Carmen has experienced, but I kept reading. And I realized that some of the language that I learned in church was the language that she was addressing. Um, and it was just uh, some of the illustrations and different things. So I'm, I'm trying to step back as best I can and be honest with the passage. But what has happened, I think, since those times of fighting with that is that the pendulum has swung so far the other direction that now... Uh, more than the abuse of submission, we are seeing absolutely no dealing with the issue at all in younger families. Um, And probably because pastors want to avoid this. I think the context is helpful a little bit. Um, You know, we have submitting to governing authorities and we're reminded that sometimes our government acts like idiots. And then we submit to, to places of authority uh, like bosses or things like that, and sometimes our bosses are idiots, and then wives are to submit to their husband, husbands, and sometimes, oh wait, sorry. I... No, it's interesting in this passage, uh, Peter has five different submission issues that he deals with, the government, and then as we said, the masters, we, we apply to uh, our work relationships, then, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, then wives four, wives, and then elders. The difference is, Peter switches the last two in that he doesn't just, like he did with government and the employment or the masters, he, just, he doesn't just address that one, he then addresses both parties with the husbands and wives and with the elders and the church. And so there's requirements for both, and so we need to see the change in the context there. Um, but remember, we've been talking about living as exiles, this whole discussion goes all the way back to verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, where he reminds us that we're sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls, and keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So there's been this repeating theme of abstaining and keeping. And the goal, as we move into chapter 3, is how we live should be a witness to the world in which we live. And our model in all of this is Christ. So look again at chapter 3. It's a little confusing here. Verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, noticed, so that even if some 
do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so some commentators said, well, look, this is really just talking about wives with unbelieving husbands. But that's not the words there. It says, so that even if some, so some are, some are not. So we don't get out of it that way either. Um, I thought that was going to be an easy one. So um, I came across in the study, just a couple more clarifications before I start wrestling with this. Um, John Piper uh, had uh, seven things submission is not. And I think this is, I, I'm going to spend more time on what it's not and less on what it is because I think it needs to be clarified. So this is from John Piper. Uh, submission is not agreeing on everything. And by the way, if you think that that's what marriage is about, I would like to talk to you because you have an interesting relationship. <laughs> Second, it, submission does not mean, and he didn't quite word it this way, these are my words, leaving your brain at the door. Uh, that's not at all what submission is. Uh, it's not neglecting the call, wives, to influence your husband. In fact, that's exactly what this passage is about, is influencing your husband. So if you say, well, submission, I don't, that's not my role. It is exactly what that role is here, is to be an influencer. It's not putting the will of the husband before Christ. And I didn't think that needed to be clarified, but as I read Carmen's papers, that is exactly what needs to be clarified. That somehow this has become an application that there's kind of God, husband, and husband speaks for Christ. And I don't think that's all what the New Testament says. Pretty convenient for husbands, um, but you're not the Pope. In fact, the Bible says submit one to another, so then what do you do with that? Um, it's not uh, putting the will of the husband before Christ. It's not getting all your spiritual strength through your husband. And I want to emphasize this one more time, and this is from John Piper and, and from the quote before. Submission should never Submission should never look like fear or acting in fear. And unfortunately, sometimes in Christian homes, it is. Our identity, our identity should be based in Christ. Now, I say that, and I know I'm preaching to a lot of the choir, and you say, I agree with that, but let me clarify your identity is not as a husband or a wife. Your identity is not, did you hear that? It's not as a father or a mother. Your identity is not in what you do. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And when you, anytime you mess up the identity, the other things below it just start to crumble. Okay? And so Peter here says, and he's arguing with the culture, he's saying, don't put your identity in what you wear, how you, how, what you look like, your hair, all that. He says, that's not your identity. Don't let your husband see that as your identity. Your identity is more than that. In verses two and four. All right. Having said that and nothing having been thrown yet. Characteristics of a gospel marriage. I think above all, a gospel marriage, in the context here, before uh, any of these other issues, 
the number one characteristic of a gospel message, uh, marriage should be to glorify God. I, I don't want to be too churchy on you all of a sudden, but if your marriage is about fulfilling your needs, if your marriage is about building a family, if your marriage is about getting that home you've always wanted, if it's about fulfilling the American dream and having 2.5 kids and a dog and a white picket fence, then you're missing the whole concept of marriage in Scripture. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It's supposed to glorify God, not you. Now, the other aspect of that, because I mentioned it, this guy's sermon, marriage is, you know, suffering. It's also not to, to play some sort of victim in marriage. Did you guys say, on, uh, I just saw it uh, on the internet, but some guy on uh, Jeopardy, or on uh, Wheel of Fortune this week, did you guys see this? You know, they all introduced themselves and he says, I've been married to, in a loveless marriage to my old battle axe for this many years, and I have three ungrateful kids. And he just kind of goes off, and Pat is like looking at him, and he goes, you're joking, right? He said, yeah, I'm joking. But right, we, there's a point, and we're joking about being married, and marriage being suffering and difficult, and if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody. That's not funny. It's not glorifying to God. I mean, does Jesus say, well, if God ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? You hear me? <laughs> no. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus, in fact, wants to please the Father. He wants the Father to be happy. The Father wants the Son to be happy. And so it, it's, it's, marriage is not something to, to be a, a, a punchline. It's meant to be something that glorifies God. Second, a gospel marriage, um, losing my place in my notes here, seeks to mutually put the other person first. Um, I, I, there is a submission issue here, and I, and I am going to try to deal with it. Um, but submission and love, love and respect, seek to understand and bless the other person. Um, so Peter, uh, in this next chapter, he uses all sorts of, and uh, in, in the chapter before as we looked at, uses all sorts of Old Testament examples. And so he's talking about this living in exile, and he gives, gives us people and stories to think about. Uh, today is Sarah. Uh, next Sunday, it's King David um, and Jesus and Noah. And so here we are, he, he introduces this story about Sarah. And in those verses, let me just kind of wrestle with this a little bit. He says, um, excuse me, and verse six, and Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I know men what you think that Abraham had some sort of pre-easy chair that he walked around with. And he said to Sarah, Sarah, fix me something to eat. And Sarah said, yes, my Lord, and went and got him for it. 
But we actually have the story in scripture. What actually happened was some angels come to talk to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son. And Sarah, being the wife, was in the tent eavesdropping. And when she heard this, she laughed. And she said, my Lord, it's too old for that. (laughs) It's kind of tongue-in-cheek almost. She didn't say it to him. She said it in kind of a cheeky prayer almost. Now, I think Peter is saying that even in the hard things to understand, we are to have this line of of submission. And so he's bringing up actually kind of a humorous story. Um, When I was at seminary, um, they had some classes for the wives. And uh, they were just awesome. It's one of the reasons why we chose Western Seminary, because they offered something for the wives. And they purposely did it, and I think it was a Tuesday night. They did not schedule any other classes on Tuesday night other than the wives' class. And it was very much said, men, you do whatever it takes on Tuesday night to let your wife attend these classes. And they were like, 20, they were like $25. They were cheap, pennies. And so Janine took the classes, and, uh, you know, I, I was very honest when, when Janine and I were dating that I wanted to go into ministry. Janine didn't grow up in the church, and so she's like, okay, yeah, pastor, whatever, you know. She didn't, like, have the background for that, but she said a number of the wives in the wives' classes at Western would say things like, I didn't marry a pastor. I married an engineer, and now he's telling me he wants to become a pastor. Or I married a school teacher. Now he's telling me he wants to be a pastor. And the kind of feeling was, somebody help me. I didn't sign up for this. And I was thinking about that this morning. Listen to these words again. He says, and Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do what is good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What was frightening to Sarah was that at 80, 90 years old, she is being told that she is going to bear a child and that that child is going to be the the line of our salvation. And her husband's going to be some father of a great nation. Look, the thing that she is to be afraid of is that God is moving their family in a supernatural way. It's an awe. And he's saying, ladies, don't be afraid when your husband is leading you spiritually to take great steps of faith. Don't be afraid of that. If your husband's a jerk, you can be afraid of that. But if your husband is leading spiritually and says, I feel like God is saying that we should go on the mission field. You don't say, I didn't marry a missionary, I married an engineer, because neither one is true. You married a child of God who should be listening to the king and following the king. When he is in line with following Jesus, then don't be afraid of that. If your husband isn't following Jesus, then there's something to be afraid of. Men, I think we've missed the idea of where we're supposed to be leading. 
not leading your wife to the refrigerator. You're leading your wife to the throne room of God. And if you're not leading her there, then get up and do your job. What does submission look like? I think uh, that wasn't in the notes, by the way, so I hope that was a spirit. You're all looking at me like you're afraid now. What, is, what, does, what does submission look like? Um, those of you who have been through the relational elder, elder training will remember that we looked at for elders what leadership looks like by looking at the Trinity. And I think that's a good model here. There wasn't enough room in your notes there, but you can kind of fill them in. And so one of the things that, that we looked at, and this takes a little bit of time, and I'm just doing it really quickly, is but when you look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is that they each have distinct roles, clearly defined roles. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit. The Father sends, the, the Son goes, the, the Spirit convicts. They, they all know what their role is. That's important. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not, they have clearly defined roles. And with those roles come responsibilities. The Father has responsibilities, the Son has responsibilities, Spirit has responsibilities. And the example that they gave in the um, relational elder training was really impactful to me because I've experienced over the years, 10 years as a youth pastor, uh, and then also be involved in the foster care system for a number of years is that there are people who have the role of mom or dad, but they did not fulfill the responsibilities. And nothing will mess you up faster. When somebody has the role of dad, but doesn't fulfill the responsibilities of dad, that messes up the kids. Now, what I have found is because they have the role, they still want the submission and the respect, even though they didn't fulfill their responsibilities. And I'm just telling you, kids have a hard time with that. Doesn't work well. So there's roles, and then there's responsibilities, and out of that flows communication. Father speaks with the son, the son speaks with the father, the spirit is, 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 uh, is speaking for us. And so we have all these, this communication go on. And as elders, we recognize role, responsibilities, need to work on communication. Uh, but how many marriages, yeah, roles, we're not communicating well, okay? I, have, I can, over the years of marriage counseling as a pastor, I've never had somebody come in and say, well, we communicate really well, but we're having marriage problems. That, that, that's, never been, that's never been the start of any of the conversations. Now, I will say sometimes, it seems like you're having trouble communicating, and then what I see is two people going, yes. Okay, so role, responsibility, communication, and submission. Submission. It's even within the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father, but there are things the Father submits and the Spirit submits to both. And so here's what happens is we have a role. We haven't defined the responsibilities. We're not communicating well, but we want submission and it never works well. And when you have those things working well, what you have is unity. What you have is unity, and it's beautiful. Um, and then finally, that unity leads to intimacy. Um, and obviously, we're talking about the Trinity. We're not talking about physical intimacy. We're talking about the intimacy of a relationship. But it's amazing how many people 
have not worked through these thoughts in their marriage and then wonder why intimacy is a problem? Well, because you don't have any clear roles and nobody knows what the responsibilities. You're not communicating well, right? No one's submitting to to their, their roles. And so, yeah, intimacy is totally messed up. Um, it shows uh, a gospel-centered marriage has clearly defined roles. And then next, it shows respect and purity. Uh, look at uh, verse 2 again. Um, he says, um, um, submit to your, uh, excuse me, when they see your respectable, respectable and pure conduct. Boy, I'll tell you, in, in life today, uh, respect and purity uh, will stand out. Respect and purity will stand out. And if you want your marriage to stand out, um, boy, think about those two things. I appreciated, um, and I've said this before, but uh, my wife um, has, most of our marriage, worked in a, in a dental office as a hygienist. And primarily, those offices, almost always, are one male doctor and then like five or six women in the office. And um, I'm not trying to generalize here, but sometimes uh, the women would talk about their husbands on the lunch hour or between patients or during patients or any time. And um, in a negative way, by the way, I wasn't saying, it was implied there. And my wife said, "I, I don't participate in that. Not because sometimes I don't irritate her and she wouldn't like to vent that with a friend but because she's like, all I ever hear about these people's spouses are negative. I can't wait to meet them at the Christmas party. They sound like really delightful people. You know, they don't. So I don't want people to think that way of you because we had a fight the night before. Respect and purity go a long way in our relationships today in being God-honoring. And then... Finally, uh, it should be based on faith in God. Um, He says in here, um, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God, um, and Sarah calling Lord, but you know, to glorify God, this idea here is that, that the whole point here is based on a relationship that has faith in God. Now, verse seven. Um, I'll be telling you, I was more nervous about the, uh, the submission issue, and I, I hope that I clarify. Let me just say this. Let me, let me go back to role and responsibility for a second. Uh, I'm not going to clearly define all that for you. And because I think you should have that discussion with your spouse. That's the role and responsibility. And there should be communication there. Um, but I think most of us avoid that conversation. I think it should be something that's agreed upon, that's based on scripture, that's based on love. How, and, and the overarching question is not how are we going to get along, but how are we going to glorify God? Now, I think that scripture teaches one, and I think we need to deal with that, but I also think that that's been abused. So we better rightly define it. I was more nervous about talking about that issue than in verse 7, where he then calls women the weaker vessel. Um, let me just say, commentators have uh, defined that one a number of different ways. 
Some have said that, uh, well, it's just obvious that women are weaker physically. Um, yeah, most of the time. Uh, yeah, I, I can remember a few times. I, I remember one time in youth ministry uh, helping one of the, the retired farm women in our church move some wood. And I was in my 30s, and she was, she had gray hair. She worked me under the table that day. I went home and laid on the floor and prayed for Christ's return. <laughs> she moved another two cords of wood. Most of the time, that's a generalization. Peter could have been talking about that. Uh, some have tried to argue spiritually. I'm not even going to go there. Some, one pastor, one pastor tried to argue that women were weaker uh, emotionally. Uh, he hasn't been seen since he preached that message. We don't know what happened to him. <laughs> It's gone. I think what Peter is saying here, and uh, I have really studied this passage. I'm not punting on this. Um, I believe what Peter was looking at is that women were vulnerable in their society. They were weaker in their position, their voice. And what Peter is saying is, husbands, you need to protect your wives because the world is not going to. You need to see them as somebody who is vulnerable in the society in which they live. Is that any different today? I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's better in some ways and worse in others. And so um, I think here we're talking about weaker being more vulnerable. And so the call for us is to seek to care for those who are vulnerable. Now, it's interesting to me. He just, six verses on wives. I'll ask him when I get to heaven. I'm like, Peter, what were you doing? Six verses on wives and one on the husbands? Really? And you want me to get up and preach that? Help me out a little bit, buddy. Uh, and then what does he say? Likewise. Husbands, live with your wives. Really? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, go ahead and live with them. Boy, that just sounds... There was that old Cheers episode. I don't know if you ever watched those. It was a bar. You probably didn't. But there was a guy that always walked in, and he had a, he had a, he had a saying every day. It was a little funny saying. And one day he, he walks into the bar, and he says, Women, you can't live with them. Pass me the beer nuts. Um, and I, I feel like that's kind of what Peter is saying here. Oh, women... Men, you just got to live with them. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, men, you need to be living in deep, rich community with your wife. You need to be living in community with her. You need to be side by side. You need to share. You need to bear with each other up. You, you guys, you need to live together. You got to work this thing out. And then he says, honor. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. Oh, excuse me, second one. In an understanding way. Husbands, you need to seek to understand your wives. Now, listen here, husbands, real quick. Peter is not saying you have to understand all women, just the ones you live with. Okay? Um, he's keeping it basic here. But husbands, you need to learn to understand your wife. 
we're, that's part of living together. And then he says, husbands, you are to honor your wife. Honor. What does it mean to honor? Man, uh, we like honor when it's given to us. Uh, when we think about honoring somebody else, he's not saying uh, honor your wives and make sure you give her a card once a year, okay? He's not saying honor your wife by bringing her flowers when things are going poorly. He, this is a daily thing. You're living on a daily basis. You are living together. You are trying to understand one another, and you are honoring the other person. This is beyond a Facebook post. This is how we talk about, treat, and present our spouse. Now, I think there's some calls to the church here as well. Um, I think what Peter's saying here in a more general way is he's trying to make the church aware of people who are vulnerable in society. And so church, how do we recognize the vulnerable people in our community? Um, What do we do about it? Um, How do we care for the vulnerable people in our community? Um, I've been reading... uh, Some of you did this a long time ago. I never read it. Um, I've been reading through uh, Experiencing God recently, and just the chapter this morning, I'm trying to read a chapter a day, uh, was talking about how the church, us together, people within the church feel called to do something, to reach out, to, to do a ministry, and that the rest of the church should be a part of the confirming of that and praying about that and coming alongside of that. And I I thought, you know, we don't do that well. Sorry, church. We don't do that well. Sometimes when somebody has a a feeling like God's moving them, we say, okay, well, but did you think about this, 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 this? Get back to us on that. And then by the end, they're kind of like, I don't feel like God wants me to do anything ever again. Thank you. And so I wanted to share um, just as a church, because uh, there are, when I was thinking about this, I'm like, well, what is God calling our people to do? Um, let me share some with you. Um, there's a member of our congregation right now that's praying about starting a Christian preschool in our community, looking at all those houses that are going up and saying they're going to need childcare. That's a vulnerable, right, part of our community. How can we offer them a Christian preschool and minister to their family? So we have a family that's praying about that. Uh, a few uh, months ago now, several months ago now, the Gilbert family entered into a ministry. I'm, these are all bullet point, by the way. They're not going to connect, so just stick with me. Put your seatbelt on, fly. Um, the Gilbert family uh, b- began working with a ministry called Safe Families. Uh, Safe Families is a, a step that comes before, hopefully, foster care. When a parent is in need, maybe they have to serve some time. You know, maybe they've got to you know, do their community service on the weekends. What do they do with their, what is a single mom that now has to serve four weekends in a row, what does she do with her child? Um, or an, a, a medical emergency, or, um, yeah, uh, temporary homelessness, and whatever it is. What, it, what do I do so that my kid doesn't end up in the system? And Safe Family comes and says, we're going to volunteer and put Safe Families for your kids so that it doesn't end up being a system issue. And so the Gilberts have begun taking in kids. Um, they needed a coach. Um, and that's, Janine and I have worked in that system for a long time, and we said, we, we can do that. We can coach. We can say, don't do this, don't do that. Well, so now we've entered the process. And the coaching thing was a lot more work than we thought it was going to be, but we're almost done. 
with the classes, and so you can be praying for us. And to be honest with you, there's actually a third step where churches become safe family churches, where they minister to, they get involved in, you know, the Gilberts bring a kid home and he doesn't have any clothes, and so they call somebody at the church and say, hey, we just received somebody, and, and then the whole church kind of rallies and does it. It's called safe families. Um, that's one way that our church is reaching towards vulnerable people. Uh, Michelle and her ministry with uh, teen moms has ventured into a new aspect, uh, and that's working with domestic violence in our community. And she is getting training from the police department about how to help be a domestic violent advocate and working with people. And, you know, believe it or not, and I think you do believe it, there wasn't much crossover between teen moms and domestic violence. And so she is starting new things in that way. And, you know, because that family is crazy, the rich says, well, I can't be outdone. And so now he, no, just kidding, he has been working and training uh, to become a chaplain with the fire department, um, which would be a representative of our church. Um, Alice has begun working with children's ministry here at our church. And maybe you don't know that because it's kind of quiet and, well, she's quiet. And, and so that's working with a vulnerable area in our church. And uh, we have Love, Inc., and we are working with vulnerable people in our society. Um, David, after um, uh, he, they stepped down from, the Reeves after they stepped down from worship, have been praying about helping out in children's ministry. And it, you say, is our children's ministry at our church a vulnerable? Yeah, we're dealing with the most, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And so as a church, I'm asking you, it's like we're recognizing and our people are stepping out so how are you going to pray for them and support them and encourage them? How do we go, yes, this is great. Okay, so we want to recognize those things and reach out. So here's some application and action. I think our calling is to win the lost and love the least. And I think uh, when you deal with this difficult topic of submission and husbands and honoring and um, all that, I think... I think just at a baseline, there is a call for us to have stronger marriages. Um, I would hope a gospel-centered marriage would have a different result than a non-gospel-centered marriage. I would hope it looks different. And so I think it's calling us to set a higher bar for what a Christian marriage is is. And um, I think it means both husbands and wives need to step up. But husbands, you need to hear this, and this is the word of the Lord. It says there, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. It's the weaker vessel. She's vulnerable. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that you're, listen to this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I can't think of another place in Scripture other than, than sin itself that says your prayers are hindered if you don't do this. Men, maybe you are doing better than I am, but I cannot be having my prayers hindered. That is not a good situation for me. So, I need to be reminded that my wife is an heir with me, that she's a partner with me, because I don't want my prayers hindered. It's a, it's a call for a, a, a marriage that is stronger and better. Second, this calls for, this whole thing calls for a gospel-centeredness instead of a cultural-centeredness. 
Look, I understand all the, the I don't understand them all, but I, I hear the, Dave, what about this? What about this situation? What about this situation? What about this situation? And I just want to say, Peter didn't deal with all the individual situations here. He gave a principle. And in that principle, he is trying to say, let's put Christ first. Let's put the gospel first. And uh, I think that we need to keep coming back to that. Um, I had one other illustration I forgot, and I just have a couple more minutes, so let me, let me use it. Do you know that the Bible actually gives us uh, uh, an example of a godly woman disobeying her husband? Um, there is the story of David when he is hiding from Saul. Uh, he's been living in a region, and because he's been living in a region and he has an army there, people living in that region were benefiting from his protection. And so he said, you know, these people are benefiting from our protection, especially this guy. We've been taking care of his shepherds, and we've been watching over them. So, hey, go, go over to him and just remind him what we've done, and, and uh, let's, uh, you know, have him send us some food. And uh, so David's men come down there, and uh, they kind of give their spiel, and the guy says, get out of here. I need you. I'm not giving you anything. And so they go back to David and say, yeah, he said, uh, he said get lost. Paraphrasing. And David said, okay, mount up, men. Let's, let's, go. let's go teach this guy a lesson. And they are marching in. And they are, they are going to gonna do some serious damage. And his wife hears about it, Abigail. And she goes, no, 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 no. She runs out there, bows before David, asks for forgiveness, feeds them, does all this stuff. And David said, you were wise because this wasn't going to end well for you guys. And David goes back. Now he gets angry at his wife and mouths off and does all sorts of stuff. And David said, you get what you asked for. And that became David's third wife after he killed her husband. Abigail isn't seen there as being weak. She's not seen there as being disrespectful. She's not being seen there as disobeying the Lord. That's narrative. It doesn't pronounce a judgment. But it seems clear from the text that when our spouse is going opposite of God's will and honoring God, that it's okay for the wife to say, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. And so, uh, again, gospel-centered, marriages need to be a bigger deal. And then finally, I think it's a call for us to open up our eyes and look at the world around us. Uh, we've mentioned vulnerable children uh, and women in our society, but there's others. And I, I think that we like to, to think that they're not vulnerable, that they're not in danger, that it's not an issue. Um, and it's just better if I don't know. Um, but that just doesn't work today. Um, there are people who are around you who are vulnerable, and they need a voice. They need somebody to stand up for them. Um, and I think that God is calling us to look for that and come alongside. Uh, whether it's students in our school that uh, don't have uh, people advocating for them, uh, whether it's, it's uh, people in jobs that don't have people advocating for them, uh, we, we need to be a voice to people who don't have one. And that's okay. Uh, in fact, I think that's part of what 
Peter is saying, let's win the lost and let's love the vulnerable. Let's pray. Lord, thanks uh, for uh, this morning. Difficult message and certainly didn't solve uh, any problems, maybe uh, created some more, but we recognize that you are calling us um, to look at this passage and understand how we apply it to our life. And uh, so I, I pray that we open up the lines of discussion and look at what it means to be a gospel-centered marriage, what it means to be a God-honoring wife and a God-honoring husband, that we would seek to humble ourselves before you for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.